Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. On a day like today, uh, it's not unusual after a Sunday like this that I would receive different levels of feedback to say, why didn't you address this? So let me just acknowledge the things I could address today at length. We could talk about the upheaval of our nation. We could talk about what's transpiring over the course of this week. Certainly could talk about the sanctity of life as today is designated as Sanctity of Life Sunday. So we mourn the plight of abortion that continues in our nation. We could address the fact that tomorrow is Martin Luther King's birthday, a day that is set aside for us to think about the things he stood for of racial justice. But today we stand in a a world, particularly our world, that seems to be more at unrest racially than it has been in a long time. Or I could talk very personally. This week we lost our first member to COVID. Scott Abernathy went to be with Jesus a few days ago. Need to pray for his wife, Lisa, who was with us in the first service this morning. This is the second member of her family as she lost her father on July 1st to COVID as well. But thank God for expositional form of preaching. Because expository preaching brings you to the next text. And today, could there be a better place for us in the world of discouragement, despair, and difficulty? than to turn to the greatest announcement ever, the birth of Jesus Christ. If you're new to Parkwood, we haven't forgotten Christmas. We started at the beginning of Luke 1 and worked our way to this point. We just continue verse by verse every Sunday. To today, we come to verse 1 of chapter 2. So I invite you to stand. This is the Word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Lord, we pray now that you would help us to see what is here. Lord, I confess that I have had to overcome, and I pray for my brothers and sisters who need to overcome all the myth and legend that surrounds the birth of Jesus and cause us to hear and cause me to preach the clarity, the simplicity of what you tell us here. Help us to understand it, we pray and to end up where the shepherds and angels do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do pray that this week there will be a peaceful transfer of power. But even if it is peaceful, I can promise you what it will not be. It will not be humble. Because we do not live in a humble age. We live in an arrogant, angry age where people seek power and prestige basically at any cost. But here we turn to the coming of the King of Kings. And we're surprised. For he comes in a very humble way. So here's what we want to consider today, that the humble birth of Jesus Christ came with a glorious announcement to lowly shepherds, resulting in praise and proclamation. First, let's consider the humble birth of Jesus Christ. In the days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, all the world would mean here all the world under Roman rule. This is a historical marker for the birth of Jesus. This puts it in a time. This is when Caesar Augustus was in power. This is the Roman leader Octavian, who was a vicious man who came to power in some very relentless ways. But once he became the Caesar, the leader of Rome, Rome experienced nearly 40 years of peace. He's the first to receive the name Augustus. Caesar Augustus. It means reverenced. And if you study Roman history, you will find in both writing and on Roman monuments that this man was worshipped, that he was treated by many as a deity. That's important to put in your head. Verse 2. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So this census, this registration took place when one of the smaller Roman leaders, Quirinius, was over this area of Syria. It's now a country just north 
of Israel. So this area was under Quirinius, and one author said this is the first taste of direct Roman rule experienced by the Jewish people. Josephus, the historian, writes and explains that what happened as a result of this registration was a rebellion. A rebellion led by a man, Judas of Galilee, not Judas Iscariot. This rebellion led to the zealot movement. A group of zealots who were a part of a sedition who rose up against the Roman government in Israel and fought against them. But then you have Joseph and Mary. It's just simply explained. All went to be registered each to his hometown. This is their ancestral home. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So he travels south, but he's going up in elevation to Bethlehem. And we're told the reason. He was of the house and lineage of David. Now, here's what's very interesting. If you study closely in the Old Testament, you're going to find this phrase, city of David, but most often it's going to be assigned to another city, not Bethlehem. Anybody want to guess? Jerusalem, where king, the king sets up his throne in Zion. But here, Luke identifies the city of David as Bethlehem because it truly is. It is the place of David's birth. So all who would come from his lineage would come to this place to be registered, to be counted. Now, the reason you're being counted, the reason there's a revolt is you're being counted so Rome could do what? There you go. I knew somebody would get it. Taxes. All right. See why there was a revolt? They didn't want to be taxed. Sounds familiar. Let's me keep going. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, this simple phrase, this is just a part of the sentence. Mary goes with him. Now, that means this. Mary and Joseph are now married. But then he identifies her as the betrothed, which means the marriage has not yet been consummated which means she is with child, which takes you back to chapter one of the immaculate conception of Christ as she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Verse six, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Yesterday was my oldest son's birthday. I remember that weekend very vividly as Celeste uh, went through what's called Braxton Hicks for a long time. Now I'm asked by young, young men, they'll say, you know, how do you know? You know, there's a difference between Braxton Hicks and the real thing. All right. All I can tell you is, brother, you'll know. And she'll know. And she'll tell you it's time to go to the hospital. And in the case of my wife, when it's time, you better get her there because babies are a coming. Well, no more. But anyway far as we know, unless we're Abraham and Sarah, <clears throat> she, she, gave, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him, them in the end. I just, I just want to 
I want to debunk a couple of things for a minute that we've picked up from songs and myth. There's no evidence of an innkeeper who said you can't stay here. No evidence. It just says there's no place for them in the inn. And I could give you a long explanation about what the possibility of the word inn means, but I'm not going to do that today. There's no innkeeper. There is absolutely no evidence that the birth was painless. None. There's no evidence that Jesus, no crying, he made. He's a baby, born in a stable. I'm sure he cried. There's no lowing cattle while this is going on. There's, there's no evidence here at all that, Jesus, that Mary... In fact, it's, there's evidence to the contrary. There's some that say Mary was a perpetual virgin. No, she wasn't. Says this was her firstborn son. She has more children with Joseph. So there's a lot of things surrounding this text that we get all messed up in our mind. Let's just see the simplicity. It's her firstborn son. She gave birth in a normal way. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now, this was normal. You know, instead of bringing some dainty little outfit to the birth, a lady would have prepared these strips of cloth and they were used to, to basically immobilize the child and to comfort them. Now, uh, when, when my kids were born, one of the things the nurses taught me in the hospital was how to properly wrap that kid up and make them tight so that they would feel the comfort. That's what the swaddling cloth was for. Keep the arms and the legs tight so that the baby felt comfort. Now, here's what is unusual. They laid him in a manger. Quite literally, they laid him in a feeding trough. Now, what this is to do is to cause us to see the utter humility of this moment. That the Savior, who is also going to die on a shameful cross, when born, is laid in a lowly trough used by animals to eat. Now, why did it happen like this? Why did the birth of Jesus the Messiah take place this way? The meaning is that he did not merely take upon himself our lowly mortality, but for the, our sakes, he also took upon himself the clothing of the poor. Now, the way, the way that the society would have worked is... is the people of greater status in the family got the better room. Here's what we know about Mary and Joseph. They were, they were of low status. That's why they ended up in the stable. That's why they didn't get a room with other members of the family. So we see here, overshadowing, we see what Luke, uh, excuse me, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. But we also see more than that. <laughs> One author said, the birth of Jesus is more than a reproductive event. It is the fulfillment of a divine promise. And it's so overt. It's in Micah. If you want to turn there with me, it's one of the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. In Micah chapter 5, in verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That what was promised to Bethlehem now has taken place. The Savior, the ruler has come. And notice these two images as we move back to Luke and the rest of the story. This ruler's going to shepherd his people and he's going to bring them peace. So now the the scene shifts. We see the glorious announcement to lowly shepherds in the same region They were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I want you to see a couple of contrasts here. First, the contrast of light and darkness. The prophet Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So the the symbolism of the angels appearing and the glory of the Lord shining around them. Show us that the light has dawned. But the shepherds don't see it that way. What's their reaction? Fear. Not just a little bit of fear. Great fear. So just imagine, you're minding your own business. You're doing what you've done every night for as long as you can remember. And suddenly, the sky absolutely lights up. And the glory of the Lord shines around you. Well... I'd be afraid too. But you see, when the angel speaks, a contrast of fear and joy. The angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This good news creates great joy for all the people. It's not just for some people. It is for all the people, including lowly shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now here's something very interesting. This is the only time in the New Testament that these three phrases are in the same sentence. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Savior means deliverer. The Jewish people were looking for a deliverer. Christ means anointed one, one of the lineage of David. They were looking for this deliverer to be for the lineage of David. But Jewish people weren't looking for the last word. The Lord. This would have been shocking. The sovereign one, the one who's to be worshipped and adored. But you see, the Savior, though many in the world at that point thought, the, C- the Caesar who was in Rome was not their Savior. Even though there's language written about him referring to him as, quote, the Savior of the world. The Savior is not Augustus. 
It's an infant. And he's in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. And he is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, here's how you're going to find him. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, there were other babies, I'm sure, born about this time. There's a lot of people in Bethlehem. Wouldn't have been unusual to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Here's the next part that would have been unusual. This allowed him to find him. He was lying in a manger. And suddenly, this announcement, there was a, with the angel a multitude. That means there were more angels that can be counted. Of the heavenly host, they were praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. So these angels are declaring that peace, the only true source of peace, is the Lord God Almighty who provides the peace. Now here is something very interesting Luke is doing to make sure you don't miss by bringing Caesar Augustus into the story. Caesar Augustus, historically, is known for this Latin phrase. If you've had any kind of history classes in your life, you've heard this phrase. Pax Romana, P-A-X, Roman with an A on the end of it. It meant the peace of Rome. And the person identified with the peace of Rome was Caesar Augustus Octavian. During this man's reign, here's what God says. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is well pleased. He's pleased not for what they have done, but the Savior, the anointed one, has come to them. And this announcement now elicits a response. It's a joyful response of praise and proclamation. When the angels went away, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see the things that happened. Now notice the end of the sentence, which the Lord has made known to us. Notice they don't assign it to the angels. The Lord has made this known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Did that just say they found the place? They found the baby. They found the baby lying in a manger. Now, I've had the privilege uh, to go to the Holy Land or to Israel. And I've been to Bethlehem, which, by the way, most people don't know this, is a Palestinian city. It's walled in. You can actually see Jerusalem if you get at the right angle. So it's one of those walled in places where Palestinians live. And there uh, is a church that is built over the traditional site of the birth of Jesus. That cannot be proved. I've been there. I've been in there. You go up to the altar and there are two sets of stairs. You go down the stairs and down underneath is this hewn out place in a rock. And there in a spot, they've placed a star and that is supposed to be the place where Jesus is born. Now here's what will disturb you. Is one after the other after the other will go and they'll put their hand on that spot. Many will lay down and weep and cry, and pray and do all kinds of things. And here's what becomes very evident if you're in Israel. People worship a place. We do not worship a place. We worship a person. And the person 
is Jesus Christ the Lord. It says, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told among them, had been told them concerning this child. So they make known about what they've been told about this child, that this is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now here's what's very fascinating. Shepherds are the lowest of society. You had leopards, lepers, not leopards, excuse me, lepers, and then you had shepherds. Shepherds were so distrusted, they were considered liars and thieves, they were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. Not allowed. But who does God make the first witnesses of the birth of Jesus? Shepherds. He chooses the lowest of the low. And what do they do? They make known the saying that has been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it, verse 14, wondered at what the shepherds told them. That means they were amazed. They were astonished. I'm sure some people didn't believe them. But people are amazed at what they heard. And then in verse 19, it says, Mary treasured up. She, she grabbed hold. She owned. She didn't forget. She held on to all these things, pondering them in her heart, working this out in her heart. And then, along with Joseph, they do what they are commanded to do in Jewish law as Jewish people. And then they did what the angel told them to do. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Matthew tells you why they named him Jesus or what the name means. Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save. Now the shepherds, Continue on in verse 20. They returned. That means they returned to where they were living. They returned to their life as shepherds. And they did so glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the shepherds do what the angels had done. They glorify and praise God for all they had heard and seen. Now this, this phrase is a phrase Luke likes to use. So I want you to go over to Acts chapter 4 and listen to him use this phrase again. Acts chapter 4. He turns it a little bit. This is Peter and John responding to the Sanhedrin. They say, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So I have a question for us today, I, a point of application for this message. Am I moved to praise and proclamation in joyful response to Jesus Christ? Or, or there's another way I, you can say this. Am I moved by the potential response of other people? In other words, do I decide whether I'm going to praise and proclaim maybe here in worship or out in public, based off what I think other people are going to do, how they're going to respond, what they're going to say to me. Back to Acts 4. So here's what's happened. Peter and John are preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin, who just 
months before killed Jesus. This is not far removed. Call in Peter and John and tell them, verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now here's where we're different than the apostles. We haven't seen it, but we have heard it. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what does the word of God say? And let your eyes climb up to verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is really the issue that was riling up the Sanhedrin. This statement right here is still the statement that riles up the world that we live in. But if you go on in verse 13, it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. The low part of society, these are fishermen. It was obvious in their accent and what they said and how they said it. Then Then the verse goes on. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. Something profound had happened to these men as they believed there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. There was a missionary in China. His name was C.T. Studd. His biography is worth reading. I think there's still a copy out in the book area. He shares the account of a man in China who came to faith. Prior to his salvation, at the first introduction and the first time he and his team had interacted with this man, This man said basically this, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, I have broken the laws of God and man again and again, I'm an opium smoker, there is no way that God can save me. But they shared the truth of the gospel with this man and he was converted. He believed because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And here's what happened to this man. His first conclusion, without even being told to do so, he said, I've got to go to the town where I committed all these sins and tell these people this great gospel. So he left. He returned to his hometown. And by gathering people, I'm sure this guy was notorious enough, he gathered people and shared the gospel. You know what the town did? They arrested him and beat him with a bamboo rod for punishment. They hit him 2,000 times on his back. They thought he was dead. The Christians by this time had made their way to the town, and they took this man, beaten nearly to death, and they nursed him back to life. The way Stud tells the story is, literally, the man sat up. He got enough strength. The first time he sat up, here's what he said, I'm going back to my town. They pleaded with him not to. They tried to prevent him from going. And the way he tells the story is the man basically escaped and returned to the town. He began to preach again. They felt so sorry for him because of the wounds you could still see and the way he had been beaten. This time they put him in jail. 
but his cell had a little window and he would stand in that window and preach and people would gather outside the cell and listen to him. People within the jail began to get converted. People were coming saved because this man was continuously preaching. So they decided, the city decided this, he preaches less if we just let him go. So they released him. What happened to this man? This man was converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say calmly and clearly, we're going to find out who's converted in the next 10 or 15 years. As the consequences raise for what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world in which you live, we're going to find out. We're going to find out who praises, who will gather with God's people and praise Jesus, and those who will proclaim what they have heard. Because here's what the converted do. They say, just like Peter and John, as for you, you decide whether I ought to do this. But we cannot but speak of what we have heard. That's who we are. Even if we're just a bunch of lowly shepherds. In fact, in fact, God uses the least to shame the wise. This is how God does it. And God doesn't need power in Washington today. God has already begun what he needs. It's called the church of Jesus Christ. She is his force in the world. So brothers and sisters, be who you claim to be. Let's pray. Lord, as we make a shift to sing we move from confessing that we are unfaithful sinners who need a Savior to now confessing with the hymn of old that we, as your faithful followers, come to worship you and to make you known. Lord, I pray over these people who've gathered in this room that as they scatter in a few minutes, they will scatter with the testimony and reality on their lives that they are faithful followers of Jesus Christ who joyfully proclaim and praise the name of Jesus. The only one who can save, the only one who could give his life in our place, the only one who shed his blood on Calvary, the only one who rose from the grave, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Lead us now that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray.